Good morning. Hey, uh, good to see you all this morning. Several announcements before we get started. This week I was at the American Association of Christian Counselors in Lynchburg, Virginia. On uh, Monday I spoke to a student group at uh, Liberty University, if you've heard of Liberty University, and presented these concepts. Uh, on, on Tuesday morning I uh, did a pre- program for local pastors, for an interdenominational group of pastors, that was, and both presentations were extremely well received. Um, and then uh, on uh, Tuesday evening we did a webinar that uh, Broadcast uh, had people sign up for 38 states and seven separate countries. That also we received a lot of emails and feedback, very well received, presenting these ideas um, about putting God at the center and the truth about God's character of love. Uh, and uh, the the program titles were the God shaped brain and about how your view of God changes uh, your neural circuitry and brain. And again, extremely well received. So um, the good news is, as I've done these this first first time we've gone out and done the programs, uh, and every every program I've done has been received with an extremely enthusiastic response. So that's exciting. And we'll see how it continues to go. So let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to come and study. Uh, we ask that your spirit will be with us, enlighten our minds. May we uh, draw closer to you in our, in our relationship and give us more effectiveness in our ability to share this message about you that we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And if any of our uh, watch, uh, people that watched us on Tuesday night are joining us for class today because we welcome to here, well then welcome if you're online with us today for the first time. Uh, we're doing lesson number six in the quarterly called Major Lessons for Minor Prophets, and the title this week is Eager to Forgive Jonah. And the key thought is, the book of Jonah reveals, among other things, that God is more willing to forgive than we often are. H- how do you like that? I'm glad. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it's my bias, I don't know. I just, how does it sound? Uh, God is more willing to forgive than we often are. It sounds like he's willing to forgive sometimes, but not willing at other times, and just more willing than us most of the time. <laughs> is God on, only willing to forgive? He does forgive. Ah. Oh, yes. Is there a difference? I mean, just the way it's, it's a subtle suggestion there. We're going to explore this idea of forgiveness. Um, how do you understand forgiveness? What is it? How would you describe it? Is that a stumping question? I'm stumped. The word give is in it. Pardon? The word give. Oh, I like that. You see, the word give is in it. I like that because it does, what, you're giving something. What are you giving when you forgive? Unmerited love. Unmerited love. Okay, giving grace then, huh? Giving favor. Giving a free pass. Mm, okay, Russell? It depends on which law construct you come from. Yeah. You come from an imposed law. Forgiveness is, is you know, giving a free pass. If you come from a uh, natural law, forgiveness is, is healing. Oh, I like where you're going with that. Let's explore this a little, a little further. Very well said. Uh, <clears throat> have you ever been taught that God forgives? Of course we have. Have you ever been taught that Jesus paid our penalty for sin? Yes. Mm-hmm. So does that, is that confusing in any way? Yes. If you owe someone $10,000 and you couldn't pay it, your brother steps up and pays the $10,000 debt for you, what would you think if the person who the debt had just been paid to looks at you and says, now that I've been paid, I forgive you? Your debt. Do you like that idea? Just just receive the ten thousand dollar payment from your brother, and now that he's been paid. He forgives you your debt. You should be willing to forgive. Well, well, the idea uh, the idea I'm getting at is how many how much of Christianity teaches that Jesus died to pay our debt, but God forgives our debt. Is there some tension there at all? Hmm. Depends on which law you're looking through, doesn't it, Russell? What Russell's saying? Sin cannot be, cannot be paid for anyway. Sin is a broken relationship. You can't pay for a broken relationship. It, it requires a new commitment. He says sin is a broken relationship. It can't be paid for. I don't know. I do a lot of marriage counseling. And when there's, uh, when there's some fidelity going on, one of the other ones is going to make the other one pay. I promise. I'm going to make you pay. <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah. No, but I know what you mean. You, know, you, can't, you can't be paid for. I get you. Um, do you notice, though, in Christian theory that it's put out there frequently? Sin has to be paid for. Every sin placed upon Christ, past, present, and future, he paid the debt at the cross. But God forgives us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
It's kind of confusing when you look through that legal model. How about Hebrews 9.22? This is out of the NIV. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hmm. Well, here's the American Standard Version. See if it sounds different. According to the law, I, I may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Then that's the same as in Isaiah 40, verse 2. The same thing. And the NIV says paid for, and the, and the North American st- uh, Bible says removed. So, so do you hear, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Do you hear those identical? Or do you hear something different? Well, the uh, Greek there, in that word translated either remission or forgiveness is a thesis. And this is what the uh, lexicon says. Um, it's occurs 17 times. It's tra- translated as remission nine times, forgiveness six times, deliverance once, liberty once, release from bondage or imprisonment, forgiveness or pardon of sins. Now, if you put the whole thing together, release from bondage or imprisonment, um, deliverance, uh, uh, remission, then it's starting to expand it a little bit, isn't it? The, the perception here of what this is trying to describe. Since it evidently can be interpreted as forgiveness or it can be interpreted as remission, what makes the difference in which way you tend to go with the way you hear it? What did Russell say? Picture of God. Picture of God and the law we look through. The law lens. If one looks through the imposed law, that, that idea that, that we have an imposer who puts laws upon us and those laws require imposement of penalties, then we hear this as the blood was shed, the penalty was paid, I can be forgiven. Without that payment, I can't be forgiven. But if you hear it through the natural law, God designed life to operate in a certain way and we're not in harmony with it, then without the shedding of blood, sin couldn't go into remission. If you have cancer and you go to treatment, what do you want the cancer to do? go into remission. And cancer remission means that the cancerous cells have remitted back to their precancerous healthy state. Sin into remission means our characters have remitted back to God's original design in Adam. We are no longer deviant from God's design. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Sin doesn't remit. It continues to spread without the shedding of blood. This is what it means. It's a healing, if you look at it through that law. So, is it God forgives from his heart. Soon as man sinned, God extends forgiveness. God, his heart, his character, I forgive you, but man is deviant, man is is defective, man is sinful, man is out of harmony with God, man is terminal, man is dying. God's forgiving, man's still dying, and therefore God so loved the world, he sent his son for the purpose of redeeming, healing, restoring. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Sin in mankind could not remit without Christ. Or is it God was... As soon as man sinned, God was offended. God's sensibility, he's so holy that he gets offended at sin. It it upsets him. He's mad and angry. And he now needs his son to come to pay the legal penalty and present his blood to his dad so his dad won't be wrathful and angry. And then, by that payment, he forgives. Which way is it? The first one. Does it make a difference? I can tell you it makes a difference what happens in your brain. If you view the first and you, view, and you worship a God like that, you actually develop circuits in your brain that allow you to be more compassionate, more empathic. Uh, you love others more. You have less fear, less anxiety. If you worship the second, you actually develop fear circuitry. You become more intolerant. There's actually a study done on those who have political conservatism versus political liberalism. And those who had conservatism had larger amygdalas in their brain, uh, meaning and amygdala is your fear circuitry. They were more fearful. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And fear leads us to be gracious and liberal or be intolerant. And this is the conservative. Political liberals had larger anterior cingulate cortex. Anterior cingulate cortex is where you experience empathy, compassion, altruistic love, grace. This is what you do. Their brains are actually different. Repeated in an independent sample of patients in another study found the same finding. Well, think about this. Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, prior to Damascus Road. Would you describe him as a political conservative or a political liberal? 
<laughs> and what, how did he treat people? He imprisoned, beat, hunted them down, intolerant, intolerant of deviant from our standards. After Damascus Road, is Paul conservative or liberal? He was the chief of sinners. See, I'm the worst sinners. And, and is, he, does he, is he intolerant? Is he grace, grace, grace? He's liberal. Well, this is exciting good news because what it tells us is that when we have a transformation in our relationship with God, we actually have neural circuit changes, our brain changes in healthy ways. It's not feasible to consider that Paul was firing the same circuits when he was self-sacrificing. I gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved as when he was stoning people. Not the same circuits firing. Well, listen to one of the founders of our church wrote in Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing, page 114. But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives his promise that he will abundantly pardon, he adds as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all that we could comprehend. Why does it exceed all we could comprehend? Because we come from the earth, which is fear-driven, which is dominated by imposed law constructs, human governmental views of things, and so we can't comprehend this. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than yours. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And again he said, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. This is forgiveness. Forgiveness is transformational. So you notice sin is going into remission in the heart, in the character of the believer. That's what real forgiveness is. Well, if that's the case, then how do we understand 1 John 1.9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Well, while you got that in mind, is it like the first paragraph on our lesson suggests? Jonah suspected that these non-Hebrews might repent of their sins and that God would forgive them. What's the implication? And often this Bible verse is taught and, and it, in this, the way this is written suggests that God doesn't forgive until we repent. If we confess our sins. Therefore, if you don't confess, if you don't repent, God doesn't forgive. This is how it's presented, is it not? How do you understand that? Does God, do we repent first or does God forgive first? Which comes first? But then how do you make sense of this? Yes. We're not healed if we don't confess. If we don't repent, then healing doesn't take place. It doesn't mean that God doesn't forgive us, but it's not complete unless we turn around and, and seek to be restored back into harmony with his, with his law. Did everybody hear that? She said, we are not healed if we don't confess or repent. It's not that God is unforgiving, and that's the, that's the point. If we don't repent, does God have an unforgiving heart toward us? Yes or no? If we don't repent, is he unforgiving? Or is he still forgiving, but we aren't reconciled, we aren't healed, we aren't changed? Yes, any evidence is for God being forgiving in the face of people who are not repenting? How about the cross? Father, they know not what... Did they confess? Did they repent? No. If you've seen me, you've seen... The Father, Jesus says, and so he's giving us a clear revelation. He's constantly forgiving. Did they open their heart to receive that forgiveness? No, they didn't. So they weren't. Were they his friends? Were they reconciled? Were they saved? But they were forgiven. Way in the back, yes, on the computer. Gene says um, the emphasis should not be on the if we, but rather that God is faithful and just in forgiving us when we do repent. Of course God is faithful and just in forgiving us. And I, I think, my view is he forgives even if we don't repent. Some think that, see, hear that as heresy because they're looking through an imposed law model. 
This would be like somebody coming into court who is a a recidivist criminal who has intention in their heart to go out and do harm and the court says, I pardon you anyway, versus the the person who's done wrong and they come in repentant and sorrowful and they never want to do it again and therefore the court forgives. We can see that forgiveness with the repentant person and we'll give them a a grace and we'll let them have another shot. But the person who doesn't repent, well, we can't forgive them. That's that's unjust, that's unfair because we're looking through this, this model. Okay, But if we're looking through the healing model, God is constantly forgiving, forgives everybody. But only those who repent, open the heart, experience God's grace in their heart that transforms and regenerates them. Without that, they're forgiven, but they're still terminal. They're still dying. They're still dead in their trespass and sin. This was the people who put Christ on the cross. God forgave them, but they're still terminal. They're still dying in sin. Yes? Kathy says, I thought this was really good. She said, um, while God is always forgiving, until we receive it in our heart, we have an unforgiven heart. We have an unforgiven heart. This is exactly right. So, it depends on which lens we look through with the law and upon whose heart we are looking. The unrepentant are forgiven in the heart of God, but they remain unforgiven in their own heart. Did you all hear me? The unrepentant are forgiven in the heart of God, but they remain unforgiven in their own heart. unhealed because their hearts never received it. This is a very critical issue to consider. The heart of paganism, the heart of false Christianity, is that God does not forgive until some legal payment or some sacrifice or some inducement, either by the worshiper or by Christ in the worshiper's place, does something to the Father to earn or merit the Father's grace or forgiveness. This is paganism. Something has to be done to pay something to the the authority in charge in order to get the blessing in return. The reality is God so loved the world, he sent his son. He gave his son. Or God was in the son reconciling the world to himself. Nothing needed to be done. If or in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, how will we not with him give us all things? Who is it that accuses? Satan. Christ Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. That word also. That's a powerful word. Is also. What's that mean? In addition to, right? In addition to who? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us in addition to who? The Father. Father, If God is for us, who can be against us? This idea that one member of the Godhead had to intercede with another member is paganism. We need to reject it. No. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit interceded with sin, intercedes with evil forces, intercedes in our own hearts with the Holy Spirit to convict, to draw, to woo, intercedes with the progression of sin itself when he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And and, and I, I get passionate about this because I was raised in a system in which I, I needed Jesus to protect me from the Father. And, it, and that, type of, that type of perspective activates fear circuitries in your brain. It impairs the transformation that the Holy Spirit would do in you. It's only when we come back, life eternal, this is life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. And what does that life eternal look like? That transformational thing look like ultimately in the end? Revelation twelve eleven. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. It's a fundamental change in the way you work. Your brain fires. That fear circuitry has been overcome with love so that you aren't concerned with protecting self anymore. But the traditional Christian model of penal substitution is, are you saved? Have you had your sins paid? Have you had your records erased? Has the blood been applied? Uh, It's all about you protecting you from eternal damnation. It's paganism. Rather than you saying, hey, it's not about me. How can I honor God with my life? Can you, say, can, you, can you say in your prayer life, Lord, I now know you enough and know how awesome you are and how beautiful you run your government that I can say, my life is in your hands. Into your hands I surrender my spirit so that if the universe would be a better place without me, I trust you, it's okay. Can you say that? That's the transformational fact. And, and there's neural circuit changes that happen when we go that route. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph says, 
Nineveh was historically one of the three greatest cities of Assyria, an important uh, country situated in the Tigris River. Because God is the Lord of all nations and all peoples are accountable to him, he sent his servant Jonah to warn the Ninevites of the impending destruction. God's command recorded in Jonah 1-2 to preach against it can also be translated to preach to it. Would it help or hurt if we change the sentence to say, instead of, because God is Lord of all nations and all people are accountable to him, to, because God is Lord of all nations, he loves all people. Does it help or hurt to change it that way? What does the idea, when we put forth all people are accountable to him, imply or suggest Ledgers. Does it enhance your desire to want to be with him? You're accountable to him. You've got to give an account. Does it? Remember the analogy we've used in here before, where a person purposely, knowingly, willfully does wrong, and the wrong example I use is a wrong that breaks natural law, laws of health, and impose law, laws of the land. They're shooting up IV heroin. They're breaking both laws. And in doing this, they get an infection of their heart because they've been sharing needles and they get endocarditis, which is a terminal condition. They're going to die. Now, in this situation, having been broken both laws, does the person want to be taken to the judge who's going to hold them accountable? Do they want to go to the doctor? Sure they do. What's the doctor going to do? When we present God as the eternal judge, we instill in people a desire to flee from him. They don't want to come to him. But David said, search me and see the wicked way in me, O Lord. Create in me a clean heart, O God. When we present God as the eternal creator, the builder of the universe, the one who recreates and regenerates, when we present God in this way, when we present God in this way, people want to come to him when they're sick. Hey, he's the one who can fix what's broken in me. He's the one who can restore me. To know me is to love me. So, and, and when you think about this, when I presented this, sometimes people get upset that I'm undermining the law of God. I'm undercutting the law of God. Let me ask you something. Which law is more powerful and uncompromising? The laws of health or the laws that the judge uses in the courtroom? The laws of health. Absolutely unwavering, uncompromising. And this, by the way, this is how Satan has power over us. He has power in two ways. One, by getting us to believe lies. He's the father of lies. And two, by getting us to violate God's law. For instance, if somebody holds your head underwater, you are now out of harmony with God's design for life, respiration. And that violation has power over you that will destroy you, and it's uncompromising. You can't go to a judge and say, well, you're out of harmony with the law of respiration. I pardon you, and everything be fine doesn't work. You have to restore to harmony. This is Satan's power. And Christ destroys his power by destroying lies and by perfectly restoring God's law in humanity. Rewriting the law in the heart and mind. Fifth paragraph says, Jonah ran from God because he did not want to do God's will. Even now, people have many reasons to try to run, from, run away from God. Some do it because they do not know him personally. Others reject even the idea of God and his word. While their motives vary, and in in many cases they do so in order to not feel guilty about the way in which they live. After all, if there is no higher power to answer to, why not do whatever we want? There are even some Christians who avoid God when he calls them to uh, to do something that they do not want to do, something that goes against their inherent selfish or sinful nature. So first question, some, some reasons were listed here, and we can state them again, but why do people run from God? Fear. fear. Adam and sin, they ran in here because they were afraid. afraid. Where'd the fear come from? Was God threatening? Was God their enemy? Was God antagonistic? Did someone need to plead with him? Did a sacrifice need to be made? Did, in other words, was there an inherent objective reason they needed to fear God? No. So what, where'd the fear come from? Guilt. Not understanding. Guilt. Ignorance. Uh, guilt, guilt as well. Fear was coming from their own conscience. Their own conscience. Think about when you do somebody wrong. When you've done something that goes against your own conscience, who starts beating you up first? You do. Not Satan. You do. 
Now, Satan may jump on and piggyback on there and inflame it, but the reality is when you go against your own conscience, you lose respect for yourself. Inside your own head, your own judgment is still there. I'm ashamed of you. You're weak. You make me sick. I can't stand you. Why'd you do that? You're so wrong. Your own conscience starts. This is what they did. And then we judge ourselves, and I have patients all the time who've made mistakes, and they are their own worst enemy. Anybody else make the same mistake? They give them grace. You're human. You make mistakes. You learn from it. Can you grow? But to themselves, oh my goodness, they cannot give any grace at all. It's years of self-flagellation, beating oneself up. So where did this fear of Adam and Eve come from? It came from their own minds out of balance from God's design. They had done wrong and they knew it. And they judged them, they judged God based on the distorted perceptions they now held in their own heart. They projected out onto him, he's going to treat me as I'm treating myself at this point. So fear, guilt, shame, feelings of various kinds. People run from God based on feelings, feel unworthy. I have many patients come saying, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm too low. And a lot of that stuff doesn't come from necessarily a decision they made. A lot of people who've been abused as kids. The abuse of a parent to a child will often instill a warped sense of self into the perspective of the child, and they feel unworthy. Nobody could love me. I'm too gross. I'm too ugly. And it's, of course, a lie. But nothing about us or our condition changes the great I am. Yes. The great I am is constant. Did y'all hear that? Yeah, and the old saying, she says, nothing, nothing about us or our condition changes God, the great I am. He's constant. Same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. So the old saying, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That's true, but sometimes it gets used in a destructive way. How? It's true. You can't do anything to make God love you more or less, but you can do something to make you more responsive or less responsive to God. If you go out in a pattern of rebellious living, God's going to love you just as much. But your conscience becomes seared, your character becomes warped, your reason becomes disturbed, you become less and less receptive to the Holy Spirit. So he still loves you, but you're just hardening your heart. So it's not without consequence. But sometimes it's said that way to make people feel good about continuing to live in rebellion. Well, God still loves me, I can do anything I want. Believe lies about God. How about people don't recognize their need for God? This is why they don't come to him. They don't recognize a need. They're already holy. They were raised in the church. They, have, they worship on the right day. They keep all ten. They eat the right foods. They've never, you know, they've, never had a, they've never had a piece of meat in their life. They've been vegan since birth. Missed a lot. <laughs> Missed a lot. <laughs> I mean, you know, they don't, they, I mean, they, they don't have a need. They, they're doing it all right. They're keeping script. Yes. Well, I've seen a few bumper stickers like this. It says, born okay the first time. Born okay the first time. Um, that, that shows a mentality that I'm fine. I don't need I, God. I don't need any healing or restoration. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, don't trust God. Oh, go ahead, Wendell. The fourth paragraph on that Sunday's lesson. Lord sent a great storm against the ship in order to teach his servant the lesson that no one could hide from God. What do you think about that, Wendell? He sent the storm to turn Noah around so he didn't get so far away. It was easy to come back. Would you rather travel in a, a whale 10 miles or 300 miles? <laughs> so it depends on how fast the fish can swim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think Wendell's point is God intervened fairly early in the progression of the rebellion. He didn't just let him go, go, go. He intervened to turn him around. So this wasn't to teach him a lesson. It was to bring him to repentance. Was was possibly the fish intentional? You have to keep in mind that the target where he was going to, to them, the fish was the ultimate deity. And here you have someone being spit out of a fish in Nineveh. So you have the ultimate deity in their minds throwing up a person with a message. Doesn't that give instant credibility to Jonah and what he had to say? Yeah, we talked about that, I think, last week, didn't we? Yeah. And so God, why did, why did God choose Jonah in the first place? Because God knew Jonah was a prejudiced person who didn't like uh, the Ninevites and wanted him to die and anticipated and saw, and saw through his foreknowledge his whole course of events. And I think God chose him purposely for the very reason you're suggesting. Yeah, yeah I think it's great. Um, God didn't wait until he got so far away. He constantly comes after us. 
He didn't wait until Adam and Eve had been gone a week or two weeks or whatever after their sin. He came immediately. Exactly. Exactly. The need was. Exactly. Yep. What do you think about the rhetorical question in the lesson that says, after all, if there is no higher power to answer to, why don't you do whatever you want? Think, think of the question. Think of the impl- they're making they're, they're putting this question out there because there's a premise, there's a belief, there's an idea here. What's the idea that underpins this question? D- dissect it, tell me. There's no wrong. Nothing will happen if you don't get caught. There's no natural law. There's no na- exactly, there is no natural law. It's not inherent. There's no inherent punishment. The reality is we have a supreme judge, ruler, dictator who is given law and he's watching and he's got his recording angels and there will be an accounting one day and he will inflict punishment because after all, if he didn't do it, well, hey, you just do whatever you want. There's no problem. It's only he's going to get you. This is what's implied in the question, isn't it? You know, this is Satan. This is Satan's view. Hey, guys, I never said God wasn't powerful. He's not good. If he'd get a little grip on his anger and wrath, if he wouldn't lash out against us, if he wouldn't use his power to hurt us and punish us, we could live for eternity in sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with a punishing and mean God. See, he denies. He denies that God's law is the template upon which life is built. He denies that breaking it, it actually results in ruin and sin. His view is, no, there's nothing wrong with rebelling and going outside God's design. There's something wrong with God who imposes and inflicts torture and punishment upon you. And if he wouldn't, we could live eternally in sin. This is what this is saying. Yeah. So let's give you some examples. Why don't we do whatever we want? Show you how Christians have been deceived by Satan. Satan takes a truth and he merges it with a lie. And he hurts people. Here's one. Here's a truth. Truth. Cross at the cross, ceremonial laws were done away with. Lie. At the cross, laws of health were done away with. That's a lie. But Christians, ceremonial laws are done away with. We can eat anything we want. Eat anything. And have the consequences. And no consequence, you see. But have the consequences. Yeah, but this is the idea. So Christians ultimately have... Those who buy into that idea and don't take care of the spirit temple and don't eat in in harmony with God's design for the way he built us actually have worse health. And as your health declines, you're less capable of serving God. You become a burden on society and people have to serve you. But if you maintain your health and you maintain your spirit temple, your brain works better, you have greater discernment, you have greater capacity to minister to other people. But this is a great lie. This is the idea, well, since the ceremonial law is done away with the, this, this, then, then we can do whatever we want. Do whatever we want. What happens? The reason we do not do whatever we want is because selfishness violates God's design for life. His law. And automatically damages the sinner. Sears the conscience, warps the character, leads to fear, anxiety, which activates fear circuitry, resulting in inflammatory cascades, increasing inflammatory cytokines, interfering with synaptic signaling, insulin resistance, increasing obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, early death. I mean, this is what happens when you go down this trail. And so this, this question, though, makes it sound like if we could just get God out of the way. If there wasn't, read the question again. After all, if there is no higher power to answer to, why not do whatever you want? It makes it sound like if we just get God out of the way, everything would be fine. And do you understand how much theology is actually based on removing God? Let me give you some examples of theology based on removing God. Jesus is my substitute, so all my sins are placed on him, past, present, and future. He stands before the Father, and the Father no longer sees me. We've removed God from looking at us. Jesus pleads his blood to the Father on our behalf. Jesus hides me with his robe of righteousness. We're removing God from our relationship. He and and I are becoming disconnected because Jesus stands in our place. We have to get him out of the equation because he is a punisher. It's a lie. Bottom pink section says, we believe that God not only sees all that we do, but knows even our thoughts. How differently would you act if, at all times, you were keenly sensitive to the fact that God does know your every thought? Any thoughts about that? Is that comforting or disturbing to you? Comforting. Depends on how you're looking at it. Um, I mean, they, they quote Psalms 139, you know, the beginning, where it talks about God knows everything that we're doing, but they miss the end, where David says, you know, 
look at me, see what's wrong with me, and fix it. So he's not hiding. God knows our thoughts. That's comforting if you know that God is love. If you think he's out to get you, it's not comforting. So again, it goes back to the two law constructs. If you're sick and you go to the doctor and he puts you in an MRI scanner so he can scan deep inside you and see the secret stuff going on that's not really obvious on the outside, uh, you're happy for that because the doctor, when he finds all the secret stuff going on that's, not, that's, that's defective and deviant from what's supposed to be there, what's he going to do for you if he's capable? He's going to heal it. He's going to fix it. How about you go to the judge, and you've got the judge who's got all the secret records of your life, the, the video cameras that's been hiding in your house and the recording that's been going on in every phone conversation you've ever had, and all the secrets of your life are going to be put out there now. Is, does that make you feel comforted? Yes? You see, does it matter which law construct you look through this through? And then ultimately, what kind of God operates which system? This is Satan's attack. We have been told the final, the final conflict will center on what it started with in heaven. It will focus on God's law. That's the final thing. And Adventists have been sucked into this idea that what that actually means is which day you go to church. It doesn't. It means do you believe that God's law is imposed or do you understand God's law as the design protocols upon life? And ultimately, which God do you worship? A Roman emperor who's got all all power or the creator who builds life to operate in harmony with his nature? This is the difference. So when you have this idea that he's inside your head looking at your thoughts, the inmost parts, does it make a difference on which God construct, whether you've experienced peace or fear? Am I the only one who had that experience as a child growing up where you had the, you had the children's story with the, with the woman that comes out in a white robe and the little wings pasted on, a little like gold halo with her gold clipboard, and, and she's the recording angel following the kids around, keeping track of everything they do? And, and uh, I mean, am I the only one who got a children's story like that growing up? <laughs> Some of you did too. And it's like, and if, and if all those sins aren't, aren't paid for, you don't have the blood of Jesus you know, stamp forgiveness next to each one, well, then God's going to have to make you pay. That was not comforting. (laughs) Nightmares. Inciting fear. Anybody have that that terror or dread of going to bed at night and afraid that the Lord is coming that night? Yeah. Yeah. Think it through. We're afraid he's coming? But at that time, was it a God you could trust? Yeah, at the time, did we conceive of God as a God we could trust? Exactly right. That's the point. Yeah. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, In Jonah 1, the Lord wants to halt Jonah's escape, so he stirs up the severe storm, threatens to wreck the ship. Um, the seamen uh, call to their God to help. Due to the severity of the storm, they feel that someone must have provoked the anger of their gods. They cast lots to decide who will be first to volunteer information about himself that might expose such an offense. For the casting of lots, each individual um, brings an item of stone or wood marker. The markers are placed in a container that's shaken until one of the markers comes out. The lot falls on Jonah, who now confesses his sins and urges the demon to throw him into the sea. Why doesn't that still work today? So what do you think about the ideas of casting lots? Doesn't the passage give us a clear Bible example of using lots? Bible said it, I believe it, that's all there is to it. Right or wrong? Wasn't he asleep? No. He had been awakened by this time? By this time, yeah. Initially he might have been hiding down there, but he came out and he was part of the lot casting and so forth. Um, In what ways are lots used today? Give me some examples of modern lots. Maybe. Depends on, depends on how, but I ain't going where you're going. Coin flip. The coin flip is a modern lot. It's a random event. So lots are too. Lots are random events. But you threw lots on the Urim and Thummim based on which one lit up as to... Urim, Urim and Thummim were not lots. Urim and Thummim actually had a divine power light up one or the other. That's not a lot. That's a divine intervention from God. Okay, so your presumption is, that your, your treatise then is that all lots are random event by definition. Drawing straws... Or lots. Firing squad, real bullets or not. Firing squads with real bullets or blank ones uh, are lots. Russian roulette would be a form of casting lots. Um, opening your Bible, randomly pointing your finger in, and believing you're getting a message from God is a lot. Paper with yes or no on it, you throw it in the air, ask a question, throw it in the air, and whichever side lands up is a message from God. 
This is a lot. Uh, the Magic 8-Ball. Thank you. It was on my list. The Magic 8-Ball. is a lot. Dice. Rock, paper, and scissors. These are all lots, depending on what you're using them for. Depending on what they're using them for. Casting lots and these other methods are a form of divination. A form of trying to determine answers without the use of reason or the investigation of evidence. This is the same root as spiritualism, Ouija boards, tarot cards, palm reading, astrology, if they're used for the purpose of divining information. Not used for assigning people to a uh, placebo or actual intervention in a, in a study. Not used for determining who gets the ball first in a tennis match. That's not a problem. But used for divination, for trying to find out God's will for an action you should take, it is the same as spiritualism. Yes? Couldn't it have been that the storm and the lots were all Satan's tools to try to destroy the messenger and that the only thing God was in the whole day was the fish? You know, that's an interesting point. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute that at all. I wouldn't dispute that he was going and, and Satan, we have, do we, we have uh, evidences that, uh, that Satan can stir up storms in Scripture. We can throw lots and find out. Yeah, we can throw lots and find out. <laughs> now, do we have evidences that happens? I think that's, that can be the case, Sure. And the lots too. Maybe this. Maybe well. There's a there's a comment in the back. Yes. Did God control the lot falling on Jonah? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? Some would say yes. Some would say no. It was a truly random event. No. Uh, well, doesn't necessarily mean it was random. No, my treatise was that was wasn't directed by God. Didn't mean it wasn't directed by a demon. Okay. Here, listen to this out of. Um, Six Bible Commentary, page 1054, from one of the founders of our church. It says, Let none be led from the sound, sensible principles, from sound, sensible principles that God has laid down for the guidance of his people to depend for direction on any such device as tossing up a coin. Such, course, such a course is well-pleasing to the enemy of souls, for he works to control the coin and through its agency work, work out his plans. Let none be so easily deceived as to place confidence in any such tests. Let none belittle their experience by resorting to cheap devices for direction in important matters connected with the work of God. The Lord works in no haphazard way. Seek him most earnestly in prayer. He will impress the mind. He will give uh, uh, the tongue utterance. The people of God are to be educated not to trust in human inventions and uncertain tests as a means of learning God's will concerning them. Satan and his agencies are always ready to step into the opening to be found that will lead souls away from the pure principles of God's word. The people who are led and taught of God will give no place to devisings for which there is not a thus saith the Lord. I have no faith in casting lots. We have in the Bible a plain thus saith the Lord in regard to church duties. Read your Bibles with much prayer. Do not try to humble others, but humble yourselves before God and deal gently with one another. To cast lots for officers of the church is not in God's order. What do you all think? Russell? What about the example of Achan? Yeah. Taking the garments and the the gold in Jericho. There's another Bible example, isn't there? What about it? Did God command Moses to cast lots, or was that something that Moses did on his own accord, and lo and behold, it was right? My, my memory is insufficient. I don't re- recall how that worked either, whether Moses took it upon himself and then God used it. Like when, when um, Gideon play, prayed for the fleece one way or the other, God... Was that a lot? I mean, no, but, 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 God, but God used the fleece. <clears throat> Even though it was a very poor evidence of God's involvement, it's easy to counterfeit. It's easy to counterfeit, but God used it because that's where he was. That's where his mind was. That's what he was looking for. And I suggest that if you look at the people God was dealing with, he met them where they were and where their minds were. But not necessarily his ideal. Remember, he wanted them in so many different ways. He wanted them to do lots of different things than they actually ended up doing. Sure. Um, Wendell. We often look at fleeces and, and, you know, how do we decide where to go or what profession or where life partners and all those of, and set up fleeces. And yet fleece, when, when he set up his fleece, it wasn't because he was a man of great faith. It was a man of very little faith. 
Right. Yeah, exactly right. Miracles, if you, if you look in scripture, miracles are often done through the great in faith. Jesus was great in faith and did many miracles. The apostles had faith. And, but the miracles weren't for Jesus, nor were they for the apostles. The miracles were for the weak in faith. And, and, and there's this other little idea that gets in Christianity. Um, I tell a story in the new book about how when I was a student over at Southern, um, they had a, a, an individual who was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident. And one Thursday morning in our, in our uh, weekly you know, convocation with all the students in the church, they brought this individual in with the week of prayer speaker, and they're going to heal him. And they had all the students on their knees praying, and they had this hand, laying on of hands and claiming of the power to heal him. And this, and this went on for, I don't know how long it went on, but it seemed like an eternity. Um, and, and the girls were crying throughout the gym, and the lot, I mean, not the gym, but yeah, the sanctuary. And many of people were peeking and looking to see if there's some sign from on high. And at the end of it all, nothing happened. Nothing happened. And can anyone guess what the speaker said? The faith of the students wasn't strong enough. Mm-hmm. Oh. Who was the speaker? I can't remember. <laughs> and I thank the, thank the Lord for that. <laughs> I can't really remember. But I can tell you, the reality is, if you look in Scripture, the, the miracles are almost always done for the weak in faith, not for the strong in faith. Gideon needed that because his faith was weak. If you look through, and I give, I give these examples in Scripture, those who are great faith don't need the miracles. They don't need, they still trust God without the miracle. Miracles are not the best evidence. With sa- save one, there is one. And that's the miracle of a transformed character and heart. That is supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And that is good evidence of God. Because Satan can't transform a heart to be like Christ. To be selfless in giving to another person. He can't do that. He can, but any physical miracle can be counterfeited, including your dog talking to you. Remember, the serpent talked in the in the garden. Okay. So bad, bad evidences. Tuesday's lesson. The lesson points out in Jonah chapter two that celebrates the deliverance from the perilous depths. Many stories stories in the Bible, um, many stories in the Bible are recorded not just because they're historically factual in history, but God selected the stories to be recorded because they also have object lesson for a grander, larger purpose. For instance, the children of Israel in bondage to Egypt is a metaphor for human and humans in bondage to sin. Moses' the deliverer represents Christ delivering from sin. Um, manna from heaven, of course, represents Jesus coming down to be the bread of life. And of course, the, the seven miracle births. Um, Sarah, who gave birth to, to Isaac, Represents all of them represent Christ, um, and Isaac was known for his willingness to die, his willingness to give his life up to sacrifice, representing Christ. Rebecca, who had Jacob, who became the father of Israel of the nation and built on the twelve sons, Christ, the cornerstone of the church, built on the twelve apostles. Rachel, who had Joseph, who sold into slavery, becomes a servant, but then is elevated to be the ruler, second most powerful. Christ, who humbled himself to become a servant, is elevated to the right hand of God to be the um, the ruler of all. Manoah's wife, who had Samson, was blessed with strength to deliver Israel and rule over them. Jesus, of course, has strength to deliver us from sin and rule the universe. Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel, who became our high priest, and Jesus, of course, who became our high priest. The Shunammite woman, whose child died and was resurrected. Of course, Jesus died and was resurrected. And then Elizabeth, John the Baptist, who the greatest of the prophets, and of course, Jesus is the greatest of the prophets. We see that these stories are not just historically there, but they're given to give us a greater insight as an object lesson to teach greater truths in reality. So what about Jonah? Any application of his real experience to a larger reality? How about this? Think about your own life now. Called by God for some purpose, some mission. You ignore God's call and decide to do your own thing. Experiences, uh, then you experience the storms of life which come blowing in because you're wandering your own way. You try to hide from reality, deny, hide from reality, but reality finds you anyway. You find yourself sinking into the depths of despair and the consequences of your decision out of control and discouraged. God steps in at that point to deliver you but perhaps his initial interventions are seen as destruction and terrifying 
as it looks like you're going to be consumed by a great fish or whatever else it is in your situation, maybe prison, maybe um, loss of a job, maybe whatever it is that God's intervention is designed to deliver you. But God carries you through the dark days where you languish for a while in reflection, which leads you to repentance. And God returns you then to self-governance, autonomy, and puts you back on mission for him. Do you see a metaphor in the life of Jonah for each of us? Or is it just me that went through that? The God of multiple second chances. The God of multiple second chances, yeah. Has anyone gone through a difficult experience that brought them closer to God? Yes. Do you want to share? Yes. I experienced a head injury about 14 years ago, and... I did some things that were really bizarre and my judgment was impaired, but I'm here to tell you that even when my brain was not working properly, God was working in my life. So even if we're not capable of making the best choices and using the best of our own judgment because of whatever is going on in our lives, God is still there. He worked miracles in my life that I didn't even understand. And I I can't wait till we get to heaven because I bet each one of us are going to have a long list of miracles that happened and interventions that our angels and God did in our behalf that we were never aware of on this earth. And we're going to go, really? You know what? I thought I really kicked that field goal. I really did. <laughs> no, but, or whatever. You know, my, my point. You know, we, we're going to say, I, I, really, I, thought, I, thought I, I thought I earned that one. I really did. I thought, that, I, thought I, I merited that one. I really did. I mean, we're going to get there. We're the one that went to the left. Yeah, exactly. Why that Andy Roddick smashed a tennis ball open, serving it? Yeah. But how about the times when we thought he wasn't there, that he was carrying us like the footprints? Yeah, this is my point. Yeah, many times, uh, either the good or the bad, where we think, man, I have many patients who say, I don't feel God in my life anymore. This begs the question, why doesn't God communicate better with us? Um, he says, why doesn't God communicate better with us? Maybe we should turn that question around. Why don't we hear better his communications? Uh, it was a little bit more clear in historical terms. Well, I don't know that that's the case. I've actually prayed this myself sometimes. I've said, I actually meditate on this idea. Well, God, um, you know, Daniel had an angel come visit and talk to him. Why don't you send an angel here to visit and talk to me tonight? Because that'd be really cool, and I've got a lot of questions I'd like to ask. <laughs> How many of y'all thought that? Come on. Okay. And, and, and the answer came to me. And it should come to you too. If an angel appeared at the foot of your bed, first off, it would scare you to no end. Once you got past that, tell me, can you tell the difference between one of God's angels and Satan's angels by their appearance? Okay. And do you think that Satan's angels are going to show up with a pitchfork and horns? And do you think they're going to show up immediately countering your own beliefs? Or will they initially start out with... historical record, the people who had angels appear to them, there wasn't a question in the historical record as to where that angel came from. They didn't freak out in the historical record either. Yes, they did. They all fell down, actually, on their face, terrified. Yeah, it was a... In the book of Job, someone appeared at the foot of his bed. It was definitely an angel of the devil, and yet it was perceived as being an angel of God. Yes, but what about... Um, there are circumstances that go either way. The point being, God, I think, intervenes. My, my answer to your question is, God protects us from being deceived in these ways, and he has provided scripture because he wants us... Here's, here's another reason. When he said to the apostles, it's good for you that I leave, because if I don't leave, the comforter won't come. It was for their benefit that Christ was left, left the earth. Why? Because, think this through. What would happen anytime any question came up if Jesus was available? What would they have done? They'd have asked him, and how much development of their own thoughts, their own processes, their own understanding, their own wisdom, their own character would have happened if they just went, tell us what to do, we'll do it. Okay, that's good. Jesus said do it this way. No thinking at all involved. God wants us to develop by, by practice, the ability to discern the right from the wrong. And this is why he provides his scripture. He provides the evidences in science and nature and experience. He wants us to invite the Holy Spirit and to lead our minds, but we must develop in our own characters, in our own minds, these truths. And that requires exercise of those faculties. Not necessarily true. you still have time to have a question? Do you still go back to your college professors and say, I have this question, Yes, and God has given us his word. He's given us science and nature. He's given us each other. And we have many resources to go to to get inside. That's, that's what I'm saying. You don't go back to your college professors. You basically you, you conclude and you learn what they told, and you move forward. 
Um, we got we got a couple of minutes. I want to get something in, in uh, Wednesday's lesson. Wednesday's lesson it says in uh, Jonah three one through five. It basically talks about the preaching and about how the whole city repented in sackcloth and ashes, and the whole city repented from the high on down to the low. They all repented. Um, and all Jonah really did say was, in 40, 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overturned. That's his message. 40 days, Nineveh is overturned. Boom, the whole city repents. Question. When, Nineveh, when the Ninevites repented, do we have any record anywhere of them engaging in sacrifice? How is it that God was able to turn from his anger from their destruction when no one sacrificed an offering to him. There was no blood, no animal, no temple service, no atonement service. Where did their sin go? Aren't we told that when, when we confess our sins on the Lamb, then the sin is transferred into the sanctuary to accumulate throughout the year? And at the end of the year, the sins have to be taken out onto the head of the, the goat and in order for the whole people to be cleansed? I mean, how is it possible these Ninevites could possibly have been forgiven and God turned from his anger and wrath when no sacrifice to take away their sin was made? They believed the word of the Lord, and it was credited to them as righteousness. So what's that tell you about the necessity of these animal sacrifices? They weren't necessary. They were never necessary. Not for the cleansing of sin. What is necessary? A new heart and right spirit to be transformed in the inner man, to have the law written on the heart and mind. It's a renewal, regeneration of the individual. Genuine repentance and trust in God is what's necessary. Then why all the sacrifices and all these instructions of the Old Testament if it wasn't required? What was it required for? Was it required for salvation? But it was required for something else. What? For teaching. It was a script. It was, an, it was a play with a grand stage and you've got a script and you've got actors and costumes and, you, and this is the script that you follow to act out the plan of salvation. But it was only an act. Just as like you watch any play, the play is not reality. It's an enactment. The, 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 the Old Testament sanctuary service was a play to act out these things. It wasn't the reality. The reality is found in Jesus Christ. And the Ninevites went straight with their hearts, repented before God, opened their hearts up, and thus their sins were forgiven. This is what it was. Now, it's all based, of course, on the reality that Jesus would one day come and do what he did to provide remedy for our circumstance, of course. But not for not from the little animal, the goat or the or the lamb. Okay, I saw a hand somewhere. Yes? Well, but these people in the Old Testament, when they were laying hands on the lamb, didn't they believe that unless they laid the hands on the lamb and unless their sin is transferred to the lamb, they're not gonna be forgiven. That was the Some of them believe that, yes. Yes. So, so how many wars have started in, in, our, in our world be, uh, over transformation of character? In other words, people fight because those people are too kind, they're too patient, they're too generous, they're too loving, they're too meek, they're too gentle, and so we're going to go kill them. How many wars start because of those people don't get baptized in the right way, they worship on the wrong day, they, have, uh, they, they, they pray to the wrong God, they do the wrong rituals, in other words? You see, you see where I'm going with this? Yes. It's, the, the point is, what God wants is not the right rituals. He wants the right hearts in people. That's what he wants. And then in closing, Thursday's lesson talks about how Jonah was a rebellious uh, 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 person with a lot of bigotry and hostility and hatred towards the, the Ninevites, but God still used him. And I've got a list of these people. Who, who other else has God used that had serious problems in their life? Abraham was a polygamist and a liar. Job was a liar and a cheat. Moses was a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute. Samson was a philanderer. David was a polygamist and a murderer. Solomon was a polygamist and worshipped Molech and sacrificed his own son. Peter was impetuous and selfish. Martin Luther, prejudiced against the Jews. On down the line we go. There's this idea out there that you can't serve the Lord if you're a sinner. If you've committed sin, you can't serve the Lord. Guess what? There's only one person that can serve the Lord, and that's Jesus. The rest of us... Just go ahead, let's quit, let's shut down the churches, don't do any evangelism, let's not preach the gospel, don't write any books, don't do any praise to God because we're sinners and we can't be used by God. And I'm going to tell you, this is a, a gross, ugly lie that the devil uses to attack because every one of us has sin in our lives, every one of us. And what the devil does is he gets people to find out some, some sin in your life and then try to stain you with it so people will take their, me- the, take their focus off of the message about God which is what the message is about, and focus it on some problem in the life of the sinner. And we're not even talking ongoing rebellion and, and stuff going on. We're talking something, imagine Moses. 
And when he first came back, when he first came back after 40 years in Egypt, what did they do? You're the one who killed that overseer. (laughs) What are you doing trying to lead us? You're a murderer. 40 years ago, doesn't matter who you are now. Let's just bring it up. Let's try to obstruct it. This is Satan's way. But it's not about us. But that's right. The message is not about us. The message is about God and his ability to heal and transform us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, your goodness, your love. We thank you for the truth that you revealed through all time, all history, that you are never changing, always love, always good, always forgiving. Lord, there's many lies that have been told about you throughout history. So many are deeply rooted into tradition that they're almost impossible, but not impossible, to root out. We pray that you will give us the ability to communicate truth and win some ways. We pray that your spirit will come. We pray you open avenues of communication, that this message about you will go forward, that the gates of hell will be smashed, hearts and minds will be set free, and we will see you come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.